Let's bring the needs of a heavy world to our Heavenly Father. Uh, God in heaven, uh, we lift up this morning to you the, the, the nation of, of Great Britain and the United Kingdom um, and, and the people there, Father. Uh, we, we thank you, Father, for the great uh, heritage of gospel proclamation uh, from that nation. Uh, but, Father, we, we are uh, aware uh, of the uh, rampant secularism uh, on, on those islands now. And we pray for a great awakening of, of sorts um, among the people of the United Kingdom and, and even in the, the Church of England that, that claims your name uh, that so often is uh, mired in worldliness uh, as opposed to true spirituality. We pray, Father, for a revival of gospel fervor and, and evangelical commitment. We thank you, Father, for the growth of parachurch ministries and, and gospel movements there that um, you've even blessed our shores, and we pray that they would uh, spark revival across the United Kingdom. We pray uh, for the nations that are coming to their shore, uh, seeking refuge, seeking asylum, seeking a better way of life. And we pray that in the relative freedom there, there would be an opportunity for them to hear the good news about Jesus. We pray particularly for those Muslims coming to the United Kingdom, that they would hear the good news about Jesus and find a better hope than even stable politics or economics might offer. Father, we pray for uh, our students and our teachers, both in our congregation and in our community, uh, as they prepare to finish a semester or at least push toward a winter break. We know this is a stressful time for them. We pray, Father, that they would do uh, their best work as they push toward the holiday. Um, that those who are Christians, especially those in our congregation, both teachers and students, would honor you with their, uh, with their commitment to Jesus Christ, to, to honor him with their work and with their studies and with their grading and with their teaching and um, maybe feeling like uh, their tiredness they want to check in or, uh, or just throw in the towel these last couple weeks, but help them to push through to the finish line. And we pray, Father, for uh, students and, and educators here in Cleveland who, who don't know you, that in their pursuit of knowledge, that they would see the one who created all things, who holds all knowledge, who has given them the gifts that they need to pursue that so that they might ultimately pursue Him. We pray, Father, for our hospitals and our health care workers, our doctors, our nurses, especially those in our congregation, but beyond who are dealing right now with this, this triple threat of COVID and flu and RSV. We pray that they would take extra precautions to stay healthy, that they would not grow weary during this season, strengthen them and encourage them. And, and we pray, Father, that um, 
that they would see that in their work of healing, in their work of health, that they are exhibiting but a small picture of your great healing power. And we pray that in that you would be revealed to them. We pray that those uh, healthcare workers who are Christians would be bold to make that connection for their co-workers to show them the great healer who is able to heal even the deepest plagues on our soul. And we pray, Father, that our church, and all of our churches, but our church in particular, that during this Christmas season, amidst all the stresses and plagues and pressures of this life, we keep our focus squarely on Christ and his gospel and not the trappings of this world. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, so if you want to turn there to chapter 16 or open your Bible app and click swipe tap there, however you do it, that's fine. Uh, as long as you get there, we like to have our scriptures open so you could check what I'm saying against what God has said. Uh, make sure that I am explaining things accurately and truthfully, and if I'm not, ignore it. Um, what I say that agrees with God's word is worth holding on to. And what I say that doesn't, you can let that go as fast as you can. But we are in the, the back half of chapter 16 this morning, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So <clears throat> Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, laid him with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent him to David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. <clears throat> what sort of leader do you need? What sort of leader do you look for? Most of you, I assume, just went to the polls a few weeks ago and voted for men and women uh, who would serve as leaders over you. And if you're like me, you got some of your choices and you didn't get some of your choices. But what were you looking for? Were you looking for strength? Were you looking for someone who agreed with you on the issues? Maybe certain issues were more important than other issues. And if so, which ones? And Why? Were you looking for character? Were you looking for action? 
What sorts of actions? And how did you weigh those things? We know what the Israelites were looking for in a leader. That's been a point of discussion almost weekly in this sermon series. The Israelites wanted a king who would be strong for them, who would fight their battles, who would lead them to victory. And they looked at their struggles as a nation, and instead of seeing those struggles as a product of their own irreligion and unfaithfulness to God, which they were, they thought maybe following all of God's ways, maybe that was the problem. All these other nations were successful with their warring kings and their centralized governments, or at least they seemed successful. Everything seems successful from a distance. The grass is greener on the other side. Maybe if they just organized themselves better, and by better they meant like everyone else, things would go better. So God acquiesced and gave Israel a king like all the other nations had. They gave him a man named Saul, but he wasn't, surprise, surprise, a great leader. And after repeated unfaithfulness, God rejected Saul as king. And at the top of chapter 16, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint a new king, David. And this king would be the one that God said in verse 1, he had provided for himself. A king he had chosen, having peered upon the heart of the man, he said in verse 7. A man after his own heart, he said in chapter 13. And the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is going to deal with the fall of this rejected king Saul and the ascent of this new King David. And we see a portrait of the kind of leader God wants. And in this passage, we see a piece of that. And the Lord's leader is a healer. The Lord's leader is a healer. And we're going to look at this. There's kind of three, three considerations I, I, I want to see, I want us to see in this passage that, that take us there. But they really point to us somewhere much bigger than, than merely that idea. So keep that idea in your mind, and then we're going to take that a little farther still. The, the first of these three ideas, though, that this passage throws at us is right at the beginning, because the passage begins with this really powerful theological thought. When you think about theologically dense books of the Bible, you might think about a book like Romans, or you might think about a book like Revelation. You probably don't think about a book like 1 Samuel, but 1 Samuel is heavy. I think we've seen that repeatedly already, and we have another taste of it here in verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. There's a lot there. Let's deal with the easy part first. The easy part is the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And that's not easy, but that's the easier part. The spirit, the spirit came upon Saul in chapter 10, after he was anointed to be king by Samuel. And at the time, the spirit caused him to temporarily prophesy. And that was the third of three 
signs that God gave him that a nobody like him was going to truly become the Israelite king. It seems like, as we read Scripture, that God gave the Spirit to the kings of Israel to allow them to govern his people, probably because they were supposed to govern his people under him and in his place. God was the ultimate authority. And the king would function as something like an earthly representation of that authority operating under God. And so when David was anointed king in Saul's place, as we read last week, so going back up a verse to verse 13, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So in a corresponding move, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. And that is the spiritual and the supernatural reality that is going on behind Saul's rejection by God. He is no longer empowered by God. He is no longer being supported by God to lead God's people. And that's a really big deal. Because even after Saul was unfaithful in chapter 13 and God told him that his kingship would not lead to a dynasty but that God had his eye on a replacement, even after that, Saul did many great things for God's people by God's help. And so it it just goes to show that we really have very little understanding of how much of our successes in this life are buttressed by God's good and gracious help. But Saul was about to find out. For Saul, though, it it wasn't just that he would not have God's empowerment. God was actually effectively working against him. The Spirit of the Lord, and this is the tougher part, the Spirit of the Lord was replaced by what is called a harmful spirit from the Lord. Some translations say an evil spirit from the Lord. But I I think both of those are, are potentially misleading translations. They're not wrong, but they're potentially misleading because that, that word, it really isn't an adjective. It's not a spirit that is being described as harmful. It's a noun. It's harm, trouble, mischief, destruction, evil, but, but as a noun, not evil as an adjective. So this isn't a spirit whose character is fundamentally evil, like a demon would be, this is a spirit sent from God on a mission of causing trouble, even devastation, in Saul's life. Is that a troubling thought? No pun intended. The Bible speaks repeatedly of the fact that God is sovereign over all of history. And he is sovereign over a host of spirits of various sorts that serve his purposes and act as his agents in the world. And we don't know the nature of all these spirits. It would be wrong to call them all angels or demons. There are more than that just mentioned in the Bible. And there probably are more categories than that that we aren't told about. 
God is infinitely creative, and he has created things that we probably don't know and don't understand. And for the most part, Scripture is content to simply tell us they exist, and God is sovereign over them, and that's all we really need to know. Because when people start worrying about spiritual beings too much, we have a bad tendency about, to, to forget about God or, or even start worshiping those spiritual beings instead of God. And, and I suspect that's one reason why God doesn't tell us much about them. But God is sovereign over the entire universe. If there's trouble in the universe, God is sovereign over that trouble. The only thing really new in this verse is this little hint of how that sometimes might get worked out. Of how, at least in this one case, it did get worked out with Saul. Why does God do this with Saul? Well, there's one really obvious reason, and, and, and there's one or two less obvious reasons that we'll get to in a minute. The obvious reason is that Saul is under judgment. Saul is under judgment. There are three basic states in which a person can be with respect to God. The first state where most human beings are at at any given time is separated from God. The Apostle Paul speaks of this state when he speaks of Christians living in, or he speaks to Christians living in and around Ephesus, and, and he mentions this when he speaks to the Christians living in and around Colossus, uh, uh, Colossae, sorry, uh, about their lives before following Jesus. So in Ephesians 2.12, he writes to them, he says, remember that you were at that time, talking about before the time they were Christians, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In Colossians 1.21, he says, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And then in, in Ephesians 4.18, he, he writes to them about people who are still or currently non-believers in God. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So, that is the general state of affairs for most people. Separation. Alienation from God. From Jesus. From his promises. From the life he offers. And so, living lives marked by disobedience to God. After all, if you, if you don't know God, or worse, if you, if you reject God, it's hard to live a life that honors God. And as a result, that sort of life can be said to be under condemnation. Because God is the rightful ruler of the world, and, and we haven't honored him as the rightful ruler of the world. In fact, we've rebelled against him, the just ruler of the world. He must, being just, set things straight. So, those who are in this state of affairs, this separation from God, are really, they're really just like murderers who deep down know they didn't clean up the crime scene well enough. 
and that the long arm of the law is going to catch up. It might be in a year. It might be 15. It might be 50 years. But they know that time will run out. That is the general state of affairs where most people are. There's a second group, a second state of affairs, a group of people that realized their guilt and sought a remedy. And God, in his justice, he must punish, but in his great mercy has provided a means of pardon. There's hope. And people who get in on this are no longer under condemnation, but under grace. And I think this passage is going to point us to how we access that state. So I'm going to put a pin in it. We're going to come back to it. But there's a way to be in that first camp and sort of move out of that camp from being under condemnation to under grace. But like I said, there's a a third category that I think, as I read Scripture, is pretty rare, but seems to exist that's more precarious than merely being separated from God. See, people who are merely separated from God still have hope, like I said. There's hope that they can somehow find their way into God's mercy and move from being under condemnation to being under grace. But as far as I can tell from reading Scripture, there appears to be a category of people who have lost hope. And instead, they seem to be under what we might call active judgment. I think that's what the author of Hebrews was writing about in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4, where he writes, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So it seems like there's this category of people who have been intimately familiar with God, intimately familiar with His power and the working of the Holy Spirit, intimately acquainted with God's Word, and then fully and firmly rejected it. And that sure sounds a lot like Saul, doesn't it? He was called by God, He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was repeatedly spoken to by God's own prophet. So he had personally received God's word in a way most of us never will. But repeatedly turned and went his own way and rejected God. While people in the first category generally experience God's act of judgment for the rebellion only after their life is over, people in this category, like Saul, begin to experience God's act of judgment even in this life. 
for Saul, that act of judgment comes in the form of this trouble-causing spirit from the Lord who or which troubles him deeply. And the men of his court say, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So I think to put this in a question in your, your noggin for a moment, what, what, what category am I in? I think the fact that you're here this morning and you're, you're listening, unless you, you came here to uh, critique everything and uh, to, to find a way to attack this whole place, you're probably not in category three, which is a good thing. I, I expect better things. So the question is then, are you under condemnation or are you under grace? Are you under condemnation or are you under grace? The vast majority of people are under condemnation. And if you're not sure, keep listening. Because if you're not sure which category you're under, that's a good piece of evidence that you might be in category one, that you might be under, under condemnation as opposed to being under grace. Well, these court attendants of Saul describe his condition as something like torment. And there's, some, and there's several times over the next many chapters when this spirit is specifically mentioned as disturbing Saul. It's obviously happening with enough regularity that they felt like it needed a solution. It was something they could see or they could notice. They recognized something was wrong with them. It wasn't purely internal it had some sort of external component but we're never told exactly what it was or what it looked like and it, and it would be foolish to speculate it would be enough to say that it is supernatural torment and however that played out in Saul's heart is something we don't know but this is the setup for the story this is the this is the set this is God allowed evil at least in the sense of a bad state of affairs he allows this to come upon Saul. And by extension, it comes upon his court, and that affects the entire country, doesn't it? That's what sets everything in motion. And that's important. God sometimes allows a terrible state of affairs to come to pass. In this case, it's part for judgment. But that's not all. So, let's continue. And, and, and that kind of brings us to kind of the second idea that is presented in this short passage. Um, Elijah, can you bring me a cup of water, please? Because I'm going to need more than I brought up here this morning to get through. The attendants in, in Saul's court, like we said, notice that things are not well with Saul. And, and they have a suggestion they say, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. We have a lot of archaeological evidence, actually, to know that around this general time and around this general part of the world, it was a 
common belief that music could combat spiritual powers. Thanks. And at least one nearby culture worshipped the lyre itself as a god. Now, maybe those beliefs were based on mystical arts. Maybe those beliefs were just superstitions supported by what we know and take for granted today, that music can be soothing for a troubled soul. But they had that belief. It was very common. And Saul agrees with this suggestion, and he tells his men to get him someone. And someone else pipes up and says he knows a guy. Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, put in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And we might wonder how this young man knew about David, and I think the likely answer uh, is something that we read at the very end of chapter 14. If you remember back then, it says, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself, meaning he conscripted the man to his army. He conscripted that man into the military. And we can imagine it's likely that Saul literally wasn't looking at each of these men himself, although he probably did that. But it's very likely that he had a standing order of sorts to be on the lookout for potential recruits. We know David was young. Maybe he was too young to join the army, but not too young to have an eye on for the next battle. And, and the point is, it seems that Saul did have his eye out for promising young men. And David was, by this description, an extraordinarily promising young man. And it apparently did not escape someone's notice. David is described as skillful and plain which is, of course, the most important consideration here. He's also a man of valor. That means he's demonstrated bravery. He's a man of war. It's hard to imagine what sorts of wars David would have been involved in in this point of his life, but maybe Saul's attendance simply meant he's a warrior type. He's the type of man who's fit to go to war. He's prudent in speech, and he's a man of good presence, meaning he speaks well and he presents himself well. That matters to someone like Saul, who is a king like all the other kings of the world. Those sorts of kings tend to be concerned about the appearances of the court. This backwoods shepherd won't be an embarrassment to Saul. In fact, he'll augment Saul's court. Now, none of that matters spiritually, but in the world, of course, well, the world doesn't operate by the Spirit. And that's especially true after the Spirit left Saul. But there's that last description of David, and it's the most important one, but whether that weighed anything for Saul at this point, we just don't know. The young man said, the Lord is with him. Even at this early point in David's life, it was obvious that David was a man who had a special and unique relationship with God. So Saul agrees and he, and he sends for Jesse's son David who is again as before out with the sheep taking care of the sheep. 
which is a little hint of what type of leader he might be. Throughout the scriptures, the idea of a shepherd becomes sort of a model for, for the kind of leader that God prefers. So much so that it becomes the type of leader that God wants for his churches. That word pastor sounds like pasture. It literally was the word for a shepherd. <coughs> so he sends, for, he sends for this shepherd boy. And Jesse is willing and sends with David an enormous amount of food. It's unclear what the food's for. I've seen a couple different ideas from scholars. One is that maybe it's just a gift to King Saul, a way to kind of curry favor. This is what you should do for a king. You honor the king. On the other hand, this is a really early day of the government. There's not really a big system of taxation and things like that. How are you going to afford this employee? And so maybe this is Jesse's way of, I have to provide room and board for my son while he is staying with the king. Whatever the case, uh, he sends a ton of resources with David uh, as David goes away. And so David comes to the court. And the text says that David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And, and there's nothing inaccurate there, but it sounds a little... Uh, it might give the wrong impression, because... The idea here is probably a little bit more, I think, like an interview. David gets to the capital in Gibeah. He presents himself to Saul. And Saul decides, yeah, I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. Put him in my court. In fact, make him one of my armor bearers. And that's why in the next verse he sends back to David's father. He says, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. So the first request is for David to come to the capital, sort of for an interview. Uh, I want to see if he's fit for this job. And the second request is officially come serve me. But just like that, David has more or less permanent access to the capital city, to the court of the king to the halls of power as one of the king's most trusted attendants. Now, without a doubt, God sent the trouble-causing spirit as judgment on Saul. But God is not single-minded. He is orchestrating the universe. He's walking and chewing bubblegum at the same time. He is doing an infinite number of other things alongside that. And he uses this spiritual plague on Saul to bring his chosen king to power. No, David hasn't usurped Saul. In fact, David is going to have multiple opportunities to usurp Saul, and he will repeatedly refuse to do that. But God loves his people still. God cares for his people still. And Saul may not have the Holy Spirit, but David does. And David will be right there in the middle of things, right in a position to assume leadership, right there in a position to advise Saul, to serve God's people by the Spirit, because the Lord is with him. 
God is not going to abandon his people. And so God has brought his chosen king to public attention. And he has done it in a way to protect his people. And so even out of trouble, even out of, we might use the word evil, God will bring good for his people. But then that kind of brings us to this this last beat. In that final verse of our passage, it tells us that the that plan was ultimately successful. We read that whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Do you know why that worked? It didn't work because the lyre was a god. The Lord would not have allowed that. This book has already shown us too many examples of the Israelites being tempted by false gods for that to be the idea. It didn't work because David performed some sort of ancient exorcism ritual through his use of the lyre. Notice that there's no mention of any ritual or method or anything like that. He simply played, and the Spirit left. That's it. That's the entire transaction. So there's nothing particularly mystical or strange that's going on here. But it also didn't work because David just soothed Saul's troubled soul. That that won't do either because... This is being called a troubling spirit from the Lord. So this isn't an emotional issue. This is not a mental health issue. This is not a psychological issue. This is a spiritual issue. And self-care and relaxation is not going to help Saul. So why did this work? Well, if God sent the Spirit then it can only be the case that the Spirit obeys God. So the Spirit must be departing Saul on God's command when David plays the lyre. And that means that God has decreed, God decided that the way he would allow Saul to be relieved would be when Saul allowed himself to seek out the help of David. And we explored this a little bit last week, that God often works through human means. In this case, God chose to use David's lyre playing as the mechanism by which he granted temporary relief to Saul from the torture of his judgment but do you see like so on on the one hand the anointed this new king david who would serve god's people he came even to serve and show mercy 
on the one who had chosen to be God's enemy. At his heart, the Lord's leader would be a healer. And he came to be a vehicle for God's mercy on all. No one is deserving, especially not Saul. Yet everyone who came into David's sphere, and we'll see this as the book goes on, even Saul were blessed to one degree or another because the Lord was with him. He had the Spirit. And so if the Lord is with David and you're connected to David, then you're with the Lord. There's a catch though, right? Saul had to call for David. Every time Saul did that, he was acknowledging that he had a need. He was acknowledging on some level that the Lord was with David and not with him. David, though, was a reflection of the kind of leader God desires, a merciful healer. What we celebrate during the Christmas season as Christians is that God would raise up from the line of David, from the descendants of David, a new king, a a better king, who would not merely serve Israel, but would serve the world. And he would be a merciful healer. And and he would drive out spirits of all sorts, and, and not just temporarily. And he could heal disease, and he could raise the dead. And all who come to him are blessed. But unlike David, the blessing of Jesus isn't merely for this life. Remember, we spoke of the three states that people can find themselves in. Well, there are those who, like Saul, who are under active judgment. But most are simply separated from God. And their separation from God means that they live lives in disobedience to God because they don't know Him. They have no connection to Him. They have no ability to live in faithful obedience. And and as a consequence, they live without hope because they're under condemnation. They might not know that they have no hope, but they have no hope. They are waiting, whether they realize it or not, a sure day of judgment. We all rightly belong in at least that place. But some people escape. And instead of living under condemnation, they live under grace. Now, David was a very good man by human standards. But even he, by all rights, deserved to live in the camp of under condemnation. If you read his story, you know he does some pretty despicable things. Jesus, though, Jesus lived a perfect life. 
There's no scenario by which Jesus would live under condemnation because there's no situation in which Jesus ever was unfaithful or lived in disobedience. And because of that, Jesus breaks our categories. Jesus didn't live under condemnation, but Jesus didn't live under grace either. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. If I give you a gift, that's grace. It's unearned. But if Jesus is perfect, then any blessings of his life are earned from his life of perfect righteousness. Jesus is in a different category. Jesus isn't in the position of being under grace. Jesus is in the position of grace giver. He isn't merely a channel of God's mercy like David. Jesus is the embodiment of mercy. And so he is a better David. Jesus died on a cross so that he could pay for other people's crimes. So that he could let them go free so that they could move from being under condemnation, which is what they deserve, to being under grace, what they don't deserve. So that he could offer a better healing than David, a spiritual healing, a permanent spiritual healing. But just like Saul could only receive healing when he went to the Lord's anointed, when he went to the Lord's Messiah, that's what Messiah means, is anointed. Or the Greek translation of Messiah is Christ. Saul could only receive healing when he went to the Lord's Christ. We can only receive spiritual healing, this healing from our separation from God and our hopelessness, if we go to the Lord's Christ, if we go to Jesus. We have to acknowledge that we need Him, that He's not just with the Lord, that the Lord is with Him, but that He is the Lord. And He is the one who rightly deserves our lives, our all, and our everything. But for those who surrender that We call that repentance. Who trust that. He can do that. We call that faith. He restores the separation and he brings us near again to God and bestows upon us eternal life. That is what God's King, God's anointed, his Messiah, his Christ came to do. It's what Christmas 
is really about. The Lord's leader is a merciful healer. And Jesus, the great leader, is the perfect healer. Would you come to him? Let's pray. Father, we we who have come to the great author of our salvation, the great leader, Jesus, we thank you for the mercy and the healing and the forgiveness that you have given to us in him. We pray, Father, that we would be merciful healers in our own way as imitators of him. And we pray, Father, for those who remain under condemnation, who remain separated from you, Father, that they would give up their warring, that they would give up their rebellion, and that they would find the mercy and grace you offer and the eternal life that is to come. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We uh, prepare to enter in time of the sobering what Christ did by remembering uh, his sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. Let's uh, stand and sing to him.